So we know today, based on the reporting of independent journalists, that more than a thousand people are killed by the police every year in the United States. More people are killed by the police in the United States than in any other advanced industrial country, the economically developed countries, that we're the worst. Welcome to Official Ignorance, the death and custody podcast hosted by Dr. Roger Mitchell Jr. and Professor Jay Aronson. You are now listening to the sounds of official ignorance. Hey, Jay, we're, we're back again on the official ignorance, the death and custody podcast. And I'm really excited today, Jay, because I have one of my mentors, you know, someone who has been uh, in the work surrounding death and custody much longer than I, but, but obviously just just been a part of my life in kind of formulating my ideas around this issue. But I just want to see how you're doing, Jay. How's it going? I'm doing well. I'm super excited about talking to you again. We've had a couple of weeks off for vacation and work meetings and all the rest. And this guest, he's someone whose name I've heard more than pretty much anyone else's in your stories, in the conversations we've had about this, and really in in how you started your journey to being who you are. So I don't want to chit chat for too long. I want to get straight into this one. So I'm going to let you introduce our guest uh, because I have so many questions to ask him. Yeah. Well, you know, I want our audience to welcome Mr. Larry Hamm from the People's Organization for Progress. We want an end to the use of excessive force. We want an end to the violation of our constitutional rights. We want an end to unjust arrest. We want an end to police brutality. We want an end to the murder of unarmed civilians. And first and foremost, in that regard, we want police review boards with subpoena power. Larry, it's good to see you, sir. It's good to see you, Roger. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're going to jump right in because um, our, our listeners and even people that are listening to this podcast that are, have already started reading the book have heard and seen your name on the pages. Tell us a little bit about Larry Ham and the organization, People's Organization for Progress, and how you started. Well, uh, Larry Ham was raised in Newark, New Jersey, is a product of Newark Public Schools began to come of age politically during the 1967 rebellion that occurred in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, we just passed the 56th anniversary. More popularly, the rebellion is known as the Newark riots, but uh, we don't refer to it as a riot. We don't think that adequately describes what happened in Newark in 1967. We saw it as a rebellion against racial oppression. I was a young teenager at the time. I think I had just turned 13. And although I grew up in an overwhelmingly black community, I grew up, in those days it was called the inner city. Now the whole city is the inner city. <laughs> so uh, I grew up in the central ward, which 
was literally in the heart of Newark. It was where the rebellion started. And seeing what was going on around me uh, caused me to have the first conversations I ever had with my family about race. I mean, I didn't, the first questions weren't a actually racial, but to answer the questions, they had to tell me about what was happening to black people, uh, what had been happening to black people in America, and what was happening to black people to make people rise up uh, in that fashion. Following that summer, I went to arts high school. And uh, by the time I reached my senior year, the spirit of the 60s was still very much with us. In fact, many people don't know, Newark was not the only rebellion in New Jersey. There were 27 urban uprisings in New Jersey. In fact, Newark wasn't even the first. I believe the first was Jersey City. And more than that, from 1960 to 1971, there were more than 1,000 urban uprisings in the United States of America. And this is why many people refer to that period as a revolutionary period, not simply because of what people were saying and what people were doing, but because people were collectively rising up against a system of racial oppression in this country. In my senior year, 1971, that was the beginning of my sojourn on the path of political activism. I was the leader of the student government at Arts High School, led a walkout, a march, and a sit-in all in the same day. And that led to me being appointed literally weeks later to the Newark Board of Education in July of 1971, becoming the youngest person ever appointed to a school board in the United States at that time. And I think I still hold the record because I wasn't even 18 years old, I was 17. I wasn't even old enough to vote. So the three years I was on the board was a period of intense political activism. Almost immediately after I was appointed to the board, I came into contact with one of the national leaders of the Black Power Movement in the United States at that time. That was Amiri Baraka. I was very much influenced by the political thinking and analysis and perspective of Amiri Baraka. And then when my three-year term was up on the board, I returned to Princeton University where I had been accepted as a student. And while I was at Princeton, I was one of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement on Princeton's campus. And in my senior year, let us sit in and take over of Nassau Hall, which was the uh, main administration building. We took that building over for several days. And as a result, Princeton divested from several corporations that were doing business with the racist apartheid regime. When I returned to Newark in 1980, I wanted to continue my political activism. I, I, I was married. I had a daughter at the time, you know, uh, doing grown folks stuff, but I still wanted to be an activist. So I actually got together with some of the folks who had been in the student movement in Newark as high school students. We all grown now, some own houses, we have families, wives and husbands, but we wanted to continue to fight. 
1981, we began a series of political discussions. Those discussions led to the formation of the People's Organization for Progress, whose mission is to work for racial, social, economic justice and peace. And for some years, our work was primarily educational and agitational. We participated in a lot of coalitions. In the early years, POP was quite involved in the 1984-1988 campaigns of uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson for president. Uh, we were key in the formation of the first charter chapter of the Rainbow Coalition in New Jersey. Uh, we formed a coalition called the uh, Malcolm X Commemoration Coalition that started our annual commemorations of the birthday of Malcolm X. In fact, I was the coordinator of the Million Man March Coalition, which mobilized over 75,000 men out of New Jersey to the Million Man March. So we did a lot of coalition work, but it was in the late 90s that we began to move in the direction of building the People's Organization for Progress as a powerful organization. And the issue that brought us there was the issue of police brutality. In the beginning, it wasn't even cases in New Jersey. I remember one of the first forums we had on police brutality at the Newark Public Library had to do with Abner Lewima, who was tortured in a Brooklyn, I believe it was Brooklyn police station. Uh, it was so outrageous. The manner in which he had been tortured was so outrageous that it caused an outcry throughout the entire New York metropolitan area. And we began to mobilize in Newark around that case. And then following Abner Lewima was the case of Amadou Diallo, which was February of 1999. And who was, I mean, now that we know the history of police brutality, we know that there were more cases, there were cases more egregious than that of Amadou Diallo. But at that time, in 1999, to hear that a black man had been fired upon 41 times, it was as outrageous as what had been done to Lawima because Lawima lived, but Amadou Diallo was killed. But literally two months after the death of Amadou Diallo, a case occurred in Orange, New Jersey, that of Earl Faison. And it was the Earl Faison case in which you, Roger, were very much involved that literally transformed the People's Organization for Progress from an organization that was doing uh, educational work, coalition work, consciousness raising work to an organization dedicated to mobilizing, putting people in the streets, putting their bodies on the line in the fight against police brutality. Uh, and it was in that case, which I know we will explore, that uh, you and I came into contact with each other. And that was a fortuitous meeting. Thank you so much. Uh, that was uh, that. That was an amazing history, not only of uh, your work, what was going on in Newark, what was going on in New Jersey and the U.S. So um, I feel like we got a whole history lesson there. I, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, a, a little bit more about how you found out about Earl Faison's uh, death, his murder, and 
what your initial reaction was in the context of what you knew about black history and about policing in in the US and in in Newark as well. Well, the issue of police brutality uh, was an issue that the People's Organization for Progress was aware of and concerned about. And as I said, in the early years, there was a case in the early 90s, uh, Tasha Mays, who had been killed by police from Hillside and Newark. She happened to be in a van. She was picked up by someone uh, in the van, presumably a friend, uh, and they were traveling and stopped at the border of Hillside and Newark. And the number of shots could not be counted. The van was riddled with bullet holes. You couldn't count. It was just, you know, like maybe hundreds of shots. She was killed. Another person in the van was killed. And she was pregnant and a pregnant child was killed. You know, and, and we were working with another group at that time, the National United Youth Council. In fact, I was with him yesterday on a, a, a case where a young man was killed in Elizabeth, New Jersey last week. Now that was in the early 90s. So, you know, we knew we were doing some agitational work around the issue of police brutality, but it wasn't in the manner that happened like the Faison case. I believe that the day I heard about the Faison case, I was in the kitchen, uh, my home uh, in Montclair, New Jersey at that time. And I got a call from a fellow named DeLacy Davis. I don't know, Roger, if you remember DeLacy. Absolutely. DeLacy Davis was with a group called Black Cops Against Police Brutality, which had begun to draw attention around some of those cases I had mentioned earlier, like Abner Lewima and Amadou Diallo and others. So um, Earl Faison was killed I believe on April the 11th, 1999. It was in the newspapers. So we knew about the case, but I had no connection to the Faison Williams family. And it was DeLacy Davis who actually helped make the connection. It was very interesting because Faison was about the fourth suspect that had been apprehended by police in the aftermath of the killing of a orange police officer named Joyce Ann Carnegie. She was killed near Tony Galento Plaza, and she was shot to death. And it was such an outrage. In fact, that's really how we came to the Faison case, not on Faison, but on the death of Carnegie, because the media had zeroed in on this because Joyce Carnegie was a black woman and a police officer. That in and of itself, you know, made for media attention. And according to police, to the sketches, killed by a black man. And at that time, I don't know if you can remember the way things were, uh, but there was a hysteria about crime, particularly crime in the Black community, and, and not unfounded. I'm not going to try to belittle the issue of, of crime in our community, but there was a hysteria. 
And in the aftermath of the murder of Joyce Carnegie, the police in Essex County, not just one city, but in Essex County, Newark, East Orange, Essex County police, all the local municipalities, they literally went on a police wilding spree. They put out a sketch of a black man. It could have been any one of us. I probably looked like the sketch, you know, and they just began apprehending people. And at that time, the Essex County prosecutor was a black woman named Patricia Hurt, Pat Hurt. And every time they apprehended one person, she would have a press conference saying that the murder of Joyce Carnegie was caught. But then the next day, they would have another press conference and with another person saying the murder. And this went on for like three press conferences. It became, you know, a comedy of, a, you know, a tragic comedy of errors. And so one of the people they stopped was 27-year-old Earl Faison. And uh, they beat him. They beat him mercilessly. And then they threw him in the car and they took him to the Orange Police Station and they beat him in the stairwell in the police station. And then they took him to a jail cell and they beat him in the jail cell and they pepper sprayed him directly into his face and literally into his mouth, causing his lungs to collapse, asphyxiation. The pressure was so great, it caused the blood vessels in his eyes and ears and nose to burst and he died. Now, the police wrote reports. I, I mean, this would be hard to believe today because there's a whole different attitude about police brutality today that didn't exist then. Even in the aftermath of the murder of Amadou Diallo, the public, black and white, was more sympathetic to the perpetrators of police brutality than to its victims. Larry, you've talked a little bit about what the climate was like during that time. And I find it interesting how you describe the sentiment surrounding police brutality, that mm -hmm. there really wasn't that many groups that were finding police brutality as appalling as it actually was. Talk a little bit about now that Earl Faison is dead and, and the medical examiner calls it undetermined, right? It's a ridiculous cause and manner of death. Talk a little bit about how the People's Organization for Progress and you um, utilize your foundation of coalition building to bring attention to this case and how you actually supported the family through a lot of the case in, in court. Right. And you mentioned the key, Roger. And what I found to be the key in almost all of these cases is the family, the determination of the family of the victims to get justice. Now, I had not seen any autopsy reports or any reports because we were in contact with the family within a few days after Faison had been killed. I don't think any reports had actually been issued at this point, but what we had were eyewitness accounts from the family who went to view his body and his family was solid. You know, the reason that case got a modicum of justice 
was because of the clarity and the unity and the determination of that family. Yeah. I remember Earl Williams, Earl Faison's father saying to me when they viewed the body that they could see in Faison's forehead, the shoe print of the police that stomped him and kicked him. That, that was enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, if you could hear the way they told the story, the, the bruises on his body, the shoe print on his face, I was flabbergasted. I had never heard. I mean, even though I knew about what happened to Abner Lewima and Amadou Diallo, the fact that this literally was happening around the corner yeah, down the street. <laughs> from where mm -hmm. many of us live. That's right. Was was just astounding. You know, and from that point, we were in for the fight. We were in. We had no choice. This grave injustice had been done right amongst us. How could we ignore? But here's the rub. Our first demonstration we were planning to go in front of the police station in Orange, New Jersey, to protest Faison's death. Even within the People's Organization for Progress, there was a heated debate about whether or not we should demonstrate that day, because that day, the wake for Joyce Carnegie was gonna be held at St. Matthew's AME Church. And some members felt that we would look bad if we demonstrated on the same day. Yeah, yeah. We took a vote and the vote was very close to show you what the thinking was at that time. And we did demonstrate, here's how we did it. We went to Carnegie's wake first, and then we came to the police station and had the demonstration. We showed our respect for this woman who was brutally murdered, but then we went to fight for justice for the victim of police brutality. The director of the Orange Police Force was Conti, and Conti sent a sergeant downstairs to get me. And Conti said, Mr. Ham, this kid, now Faison was a grown man with children. Conti said, this kid, was not a victim of police brutality. And we was wow. like, well, according to his family, that's not the case. And we, we did not agree. That was our first demonstration and, and it was huge. The first, yeah. the first months of demonstrating, all the demonstrations for Faison were, were very large because he came from a family that was well known throughout East Orange, Newark, and other parts of Essex County, New Jersey. And, and from the Muslim community too, because many members of his family were Muslim. So there was a, a huge turnout for him. But the Star Ledger, see the media is key in these police brutality cases. Because if you were to read the first articles of, about Faison, you would have thought he was the criminal. Yeah. You know, th they would put a picture, now he, he had, you know, a, he had had a record and he had served some time, but that was done and it was way in the past. It wasn't even like it was something recent, you know? And, and this is how it is. They want to drag your past up in order to delegitimize whatever claims you're making for justice. Yeah. And they would make his picture dark. 
and this was something, if you remember the OJ case, uh, Time Magazine was exposed for making mm -hmm. the picture of OJ Simpson darker on its cover than he really was. Well, this was something being done to black men by a lot of media sources, including Earl Faison. Yeah. And you know, every paragraph, the first paragraph, former felon, you know, they're going to make the victim the great. And this is, you know, this is something that Malcolm X talked about. If you read Malcolm, yeah. you read this book right here, Malcolm X Speaks. In, in one of his, his speeches, he said, they will try to make the criminal look like the victim and the victim look like the criminal. And that's what they tried to do with Earl Faison. In the early days of this fight, there was no sympathy for Faison. And they justified it by trying to overlay it with the, the tragic death of Joyce Carnegie. And here's the thing, and you gentlemen would understand this in particular, the county prosecutor, Patricia Hurt, never launched a homicide investigation into the death of Earl Faison. To this day, and you know, that homicide is a state charge. That is the state of New Jersey, the state of New York, so on and so forth. The charges against the officers were federal charges, civil rights violations, and conspiracy. The county of Essex never brought a homicide investigation. This was outrageous. And we immediately had a demonstration at the federal building demanding that the U.S. attorney step in. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. At that time, I didn't know all the ins and outs of the law. All I knew was police brutality was a problem and people were being killed and it had to be stopped. I didn't know about the separate jurisdictions and the different laws, the state and the federal and on and on. But we were told that the only avenue open to us at that point was to get the United States attorney for New Jersey to come in and investigate this case. And as a result of the demands of, of Faison's family and their attorney and the protests from the community, the U.S. Attorney's Office did step in and did do an investigation. But to this day, we still consider the case of Earl Faison to be open because a man was killed. If they can reopen the death of Emmett Till, who was killed 60 or more years ago, then they can reopen the case of Earl Faison because only a modicum of justice was achieved in that case. And, and Roger, you mentioned the medical examiner. So when the feds stepped in, they brought their own everything. And a year later, the regional medical examiner for the state of New Jersey issued a, a statement, a public statement, saying that Earl Faison died in a, quote, stairwell of torture. And the following summer, they arrested five officers and charged them. And it was quite something because no one expected it. We didn't even expect it because we didn't have much faith in the criminal justice system. I'm going to tell you from the beginning, we were fighting for the family, but, you know, we were fighting for the sake of fighting. We didn't think there would be any justice in this case. 
because the way I mean, everything was stacked against the victim. You know, the, the the county prosecutor didn't want to do a homicide investigation. The media didn't want to recognize the injustice that was done. But the feds stepped in and they did charge these officers, as I said, for civil rights violations and for conspiracy. But here's the rub with that. There was a reporter from the Star-Ledger. His name was Kevin Dilworth. Hmm. And I remember after the story broke, where you saw they had pictures of these officers in the handcuffs, because this was so unusual. This this never happened in Jersey. They're going to lock up some officers for killing a black man. Kevin Dilworth called me and said to me, he said, even in his journalistic investigation, they knew that as many as 19 officers were somehow connected that night to what happened to Faison. Not five, 19. Not just the officers that beat him, but say for instance, the officers that removed the back seat of the car in which Faison was beaten. The officers that tampered with the crime scene, cleaning up blood. Officers that were in the police station who heard Faison being beat and did not intervene to save him. Yeah. It was so deep after the officers were arrested, Conti was fired. He was fired by the mayor of Orange at that time, who was Mims Hackett. And he was replaced with a black man whose name escapes me at the moment. The new black police director in Orange went before the city council and asked for an additional appropriation for the police department in Orange because he believed that he was going to lose as many as 20 men behind the Faison case. So that's that's one aspect of the story that's never, because you know in hindsight now, people want to say, well, justice was achieved. But if you know the details, you know that only, you know, a few drops of justice yeah. were achieved. Mr. Hamp, I, I wanted to jump in here. I, what you're talking about is both particular to the, the case of Earl Faison, but it's also indicative of a much larger national problem. The yes. way that we deal with the issue of death in custody, police brutality, as it was called back then, it, it is at the local level. We rely on local authorities to police local law enforcement agencies, and we ask local or state authorities to report deaths in custody. Even when we do it at the national level, it's still a state requirement. And there are so many barriers to getting good information. And also, just to go back to something you said, you know, you said certainly there were more more people who had been brutalized by police than uh, Abner Luima and Earl Faison. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what we know from a data perspective and and why still we know about so few of these cases. We only now we know the ones that get video coverage or uh, maybe someone leaks some information about it. But I was wondering if you could just talk about that data issue a bit. Right. Well, the data issue is a serious issue because until you know the dimensions of a problem, how can you solve the problem? You know, you said that the states require police to report the data 
but there's no penalty if they don't report the data. So they don't report the data. It's only in recent years that people even started to try to count. And many of these efforts have been independent journalistic efforts, like the Star-Ledger did the Force Report, you know, and AP, uh, Asbury Park Press, and The Guardian started counting, and Washington Post has started counting. And we, we kill more people in America than Chinese police. They got four times the population. United States has about 335 million people. China has 1.2 billion people. We have a police force comparable to the size of the police force in the People's Republic of China. To answer your question directly, what we need are federal reporting requirements and with penalties. Like, if you don't give us these damn figures, you're going to lose whatever federal funding your police forces get from the federal government. The data reporting is extremely important. Larry, what we've been talking about, um, and you know this from, you've known me now for for 24, 25 years, and, um, you know, I've- and Roger was very much involved in a very serious way uh, in the struggle for justice for Earl Faison. And he was a student at that time. And I was very concerned about him because he was so serious. I saw a lot of myself in Roger, and Roger was willing to sacrifice everything in this fight for justice. But uh, he was, he I know he has that shirt and tie on now and uh, that very professional demeanor, but that brother was on fire. <laughs> he was more militant than I was. <laughs> Go ahead, Roger, I'm sorry. No, nah, no. Nah, listen, you know, everybody's upset because your your feed is not given the greatest feed. And 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 that's I'm happy that it's not because I'm <laughs> but this is this is we're getting to our last couple of questions. And Larry, you're right. You know, when I was a, a medical student with you all, um, I just I just felt as though uh, there was more than a criminal justice approach that we could take to this problem, that that this approach was not just for activists and advocates or lawyers and journalists, that physicians and um, public health providers needed to play a role in this issue. And so we've decided that one of the ways that we can collect the data is by putting a checkbox on the U.S. standard death certificate, and that Physicians that are signing these death certificates in hospitals um, and medical examiners that are signing the death certificate, whether they're signing it appropriately or not, by checking the box, we have visibility into all the deaths that are occurring across the country. I just want to get your thoughts about having a more holistic approach to this data collection issue than just the, the law enforcement groups. Well, there has to be a more holistic approach. And um, what the medical examiners do and the coroners do is very important. And what we need are medical examiners and coroners with integrity who are trying to present the truth 
of what happened through science as opposed to trying to weave a story that has the patina of scientific credibility that ends up supporting the police narrative, which often is not the truth. And I cite this coroner from, was she from New York City that had falsified so many, like several hundred reports that in essence, you know, justified whatever the police said. So, so we need the truth. The only way we can solve a problem is to examine the truth objectively and scientifically and come up with solutions that are realistic and helpful. I mean, if we were to say that the police for the last 30 years killed a thousand people every year, that would be more than 30,000 people. But those are the cases that we know about. Yeah. What about all the cases that were never reported? Yeah. I just wanted to let you know, I don't know if you know this, uh, but Roger has such a, a strong place in his heart for you. And it, I think that Roger was, uh, Roger was actually afraid to speak. You, you, you said that he was a firebrand, that he was, you know, more radical than Malcolm X and all of this stuff. But I don't think Roger saw himself in that way at that time. And one of the things he told me at some point was that that Larry put the the microphone or the bullhorn, whatever it was, in my hand, and that's kind of what got Roger talking. And 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 where Roger is today, I think it's safe to say that he wouldn't be the person he was. He wouldn't be where he is now without that support and mentorship that you gave him twenty five years ago. So I wanted to say thank you for that. It's given me a really uh, amazing opportunity to work with him on this project. I don't know if he would have even asked me to write a book about this if it wasn't for your engagement with him at that that point in his life when when he was sort of unsure about whether the doctor's role was to stand up at a uh, at a protest and speak out, even if he was speaking out on medical issues. I just wanted to to get that out there and make sure that you knew that because I think it's important for you to know. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Very glad to hear that. Once he got the, the bullhorn, he knew what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, man. Listen, he knew what to listen. do with it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I wish yes, I yes, wish sir. we had more young men in the struggle the way Roger was in that struggle uh, at that time, because the problems are worse today than they were in 1999 when Faison was killed. It's not better. It's worse. And now uh, we have a whole movement in this country that, you know, is supporting these authoritarian and fascist measures. You would have thought that in the aftermath of Floyd's death, that there would have been vast changes in the way police were conducting themselves, but they haven't. There's a George Floyd every week somewhere in America. In fact, the numbers for 2022 of police shooting deaths in America were the highest they've ever been since they started counting the numbers. Think about that. That's just what we know. That's what's been reported or recorded. I just wanted to thank you for everything you've done for Newark and for Roger and for everyone else. Uh, and 
It was great to meet you in person. Love you so much, man. All right. Bye-bye. You know, Jay, we talked about this earlier, how um, death in custody has been pervasive. And both of us have come to this space in a little bit different way. You through the human rights lens globally and, 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 and understanding that you didn't have to look too far from our own country to know that these constitutional issues and were happening here. And, and I came into this because there was a death literally right down the street from where I was living of an individual who died secondary to police brutality. And at a 20, as 23 years old and now have, I had already heard about Amadou Diallo and was engaged in Amadou Diallo. And then two months later, Earl Faison gets killed. And I was looking for a way to participate in whatever was going to happen in New Jersey, in Essex County, where I was living, where I was going to school. And I met People's Organization for Progress, but I also met Larry Hamm, who's the founder and um, president, if you will, of the People's Organization for Progress. And it was it was during that time in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when we were protesting these deaths or the death of Earl Faison. But more importantly, I was gaining a voice and trying to understand how I could connect what I was learning in medical school, what I had learned at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, what I knew about violence as a public health issue. I was coming into my knowledge of all of those things. And at the same time, Earl Faison dies. I meet People's Organization for Progress and Larry Hamm. And that's where I get a little bit more of my voice. That's where I start maturing and making the connections between public health, medicine, and the violence that we were seeing in the streets of our community, whether it's violence uh, in, 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 you know, black on black violence, for lack of better terms, or it was police violence. I knew that we could establish principles to decrease these violence and prevent this violence if we understood it. And so it was People's Organization for Progress. It was Larry Hamm that gave me a community platform to discuss these theories. And it's funny because a lot of the times in a PhD and when you're doing a, a high level degree, it's these echo chambers of academia where you're testing out your theories. I had an opportunity to test my theories out. Theories that we are that are still in that are still as relevant today as they were in 1999. I was testing them out in the streets on the streets of Newark and with the People's Organization for Progress and Larry Hamm. Um, and now oh, these theories are are even more mainstream than they were back then. And now we get to share them with the world. Totally agree. I've been struggling to kind of, of the way that I wanted to end the podcast. Um, and when you were just talking, it, it really reminded me that we as people, we as two human beings share so much in common. I mean, the two of us share way more uh, in common than, than we have differences. Uh, we have the same sensibility. 
I would almost say we have a very similar sense of humor. We, you know, we grew up listening to the same music. We have the same concerns. But one thing that is different and one thing that really shades the, our interactions is that I grew up white in this country and you grew up black. And it, it is, it's, a, it's an unavoidable reality. Um, and it, I don't, I'm not even quite sure what to say about it. But the fact that I came to this topic through my intellectual interests, which obviously have a background in my own personal life and in, in my childhood, which we've discussed, which you know about. Um, but the fact that I came to this from an intellectual perspective, an academic perspective, and you came to it from a community perspective, I, I think that really says something about this country. I'm not exposed to intracommunal violence mostly because my, the the community that I come from is is wealthy uh or wealthy you know it's 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 comfortable um and I, I don't experience police violence in my community in any meaningful way and it it just I, I I don't even know I don't even know where to go with it I don't know what it means um but it just says something about the United States that you have two people focused on the same issue uh, care about it deeply, but come about it from such different perspectives. I think it's valuable to see both, but I really don't think it's possible to understand death in custody w without really knowing the impact that it has on communities and, and feeling it. Um, I don't think I would have ever done this project without your involvement, with your guidance, with your, uh, with your presence, because I feel like there would be something that I could never get i could never gain access to um even if i could write a brilliant book about it there was something about doing this book doing this project doing the podcast with you that gave me insight in big ways and small ways about why it matters and i think just you talking about early involvement i mean we've talked about this a lot um the role that larry ham had and just that you found your voice on the steps of the police department I think that really matters and I think it's really important. And I think that it adds so much um, and I've learned so much for it, from it. So um, I, I just wanted to say thank you for, for letting me into that world. Thank you for um, you know, teaching me so much. And, and I hope that our readers are able to, to see the value of, of, of both perspectives. And I think that you, you, know, you have both, obviously you have the academic perspective, but also the lived experience. And I, I really hope that our listeners and readers, especially the ones that haven't grown up in communities that have experienced this kind of police violence and of um, of death in custody can can really understand why it matters. So I'm going to stop there and say absolutely, thank you. absolutely, Jay. And I think you said it best: is that in order to solve the problems that the truly important problems, uh, whether they be social problems or whether it be the cure for cancer or the vac vaccine for COVID, it's going to take us all, right? It's going to take us all of how, all of our perspectives and how we come to the work. And this is no different. We have come into this space as two individuals that share commonalities, but it's what our, it's our differences that has made this project important. It's our, it's our, it's our, it's our experiences, our training, our 
our ability to use our talents. Each and each one of us has particular talents that we're using for this, for this collaboration. And it's so critically important for our listeners to understand that if we are going to solve these hard problems that we have, we're going to have to collaborate in a way that, that moves, moves the ball forward. I think we've done a good job here. And I think that this is not the last that, that individuals will hear from us, but it's also, I think has the ability to, I think it also allows for our book to live forever and to be foundational for future historians, future human rights activists and advocates, future public health officials, future attorneys, um, physicians, community members. And I think that's the power of what we've done here. We've created something that even crosses genres as it relates to the person that we're trying to touch. We, at, we were asked so many times, who's the audience for our book? And who's the audience, I guess, even for this podcast? And I think the answer to that is whoever's willing to listen, whoever's willing to read it, you're our audience. And because you're our audience, we want you to take what you've learned in this podcast, take what you've learned in this, in this book, and apply it. Apply it to justice, apply it to freedom, apply it to relationships, and apply it to the future ideal of what this country can be. Because this is these are the types of things that are required if we're going to do so. Well, I can't top that. So I'm just going to say amen and goodbye. And uh, until next season, if they give us one. Jay, you're great, man. <laughs>